can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. But sometimes I wonder what He can do through me. No great success to show. No glory of my own, yet in my weakness He is there to let me know. His strength is perfect when our strength is gone.
Amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank you. We thank you for the truth and reality of that song. We thank you that in our weakness, your strength truly is perfect. We find our strength in you when we have none left in ourselves. We're nothing on our own, Father. You take all our flaws, all our weaknesses, all our failures, and infuse them with your power. And by that power, Lord, we find victory. Only through you, only through you do we become something. Thank you for your faithfulness and goodness to us, Father. In the precious name of your Son, we pray. Amen. Before I start this morning, I'd love to see a, a show of hands. How many left-handers do we have here? Wow. Okay. Apparently you're smart and crafty. Okay, Southpaws, this, this sermon is dedicated to you. And, and for you non-baseball fans, early ball fields, and this, this is still pretty much true today, were built with home plate facing, facing the east. And uh, that way, the late afternoon sun wouldn't get in the batter's eyes when they were up at the plate, which is a big deal when you're having a baseball thrown at you at 90 miles an hour. Uh, so the, the, the pitcher faced west, and if you're right-handed, you're throwing with your north side hand. If you're left-handed, you're throwing with your south side or south paw. Well, in our society of, of majorities, left-handedness has historically been seen as, as an oddity, almost a handicap. Parents years ago were encouraged to correct their children. If you notice tendencies that they, they favored their left hand, try and get them to use their right hand. Every product designed is usually designed for right-handers. If there is a left-handed version, it's an afterthought. Life is tougher for lefties. You might say left-handed people are inadvertently discriminated against. Well, recently my oldest son, Jordan, who is left-handed, was a little bit discouraged as to why he couldn't use his sis sister's baseball glove or her scissors. Why did he have to have special versions? And I explained to him, well, that's because you use your left hand. She uses her right. It's, it's no, no better or worse. It's just different. So to encourage him, I, I looked up famous left-handers in our history. And I explained to him that some of the greatest, most talented people in all of our history were left-handed. Ronald Reagan, the greatest president I will ever witness in my lifetime, was left-handed. Jimi Hendrix, the greatest guitar player of all time, was left-handed. Babe Ruth, the greatest baseball slugger ever, was left-handed. Pele, greatest soccer player ever, was left-footed. <laughs> and, uh, you know, none of, it, none of it seemed to matter to him till, till I looked down on the list and I, and I arrived at Mark Hamill. 
I said, Jordan, Luke Skywalker, the greatest Jedi in the galaxy, was left-handed. Well, that's all he needed to hear. He got up, shot out, he had a new spring in his step, and he went around saying, he is Luke Skywalker. And he left before I could tell him all about the story of one of the greatest underdog heroes in all of Scripture. It's a little told story about a little-known man, a man whose courage and bravery not only led the nation of Israel to a stunning come-from-behind military victory over a far more powerful enemy, but, but a man who inspired an entire nation back to moral righteousness, back to God. And a man who accomplished all this, not despite the fact that he was left-handed, but specifically because he was. So turn with me to our text this morning, or look up Judges chapter 3. We're going to read today about an unlikely hero named Ehud. And for a little context, Israel was going through this cyclical rebellion against God. They would sin against him and, and forget him, and he would send an oppressor against them, and when they repented, he would raise up a, a, someone to deliver them. And over and over, we see in the Old Testament, the cycle repeating itself. Matthew Henry said about this, he said, when Israel sins, God raises up a new oppressor. The Israelites did ill, and here in, in Judges 3, we're going to read, the Moabites did worse, yet... Because God punishes the sins of his own people in this world, Israel is weakened and Moab strengthened against them. If lesser troubles do not do the work, God will send greater. And it's an important lesson for us still today. So here we are. This cycle is continuing. And we pick it up in Judges chapter 3 and starting at verse 12. We read, Again, the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord. And because they did this evil, the Lord gave Eglon, king of Moab, power over Israel. Getting the Ammonites and Amalekites to join him, Eglon came and attacked Israel, and they took possession of the city of Palms. The Israelites were subject to Eglon, king of Moab, for 18 years. Now, history tells us a little bit about this king. He, he was no benevolent king. Josephus tells us that his reign was marked by terror. He oppressed Israel. He committed unspeakable acts against them. He forced them to pay tributes. He took their dignity. He took their land. He took their money. And uh, essentially, he tortured and killed many. This was no, this was no good guy. Think if uh, Hitler and Maleficent had a child, this would be him. <laughs> so again, the Israelites cried out to the Lord, and he gave them a deliverer, Ehud, a left-handed man, the son of Jerah the Benjamite. The Israelites sent him with tribute to Eglon, king of Moab. Now Ehud had made a double-edged sword about a cubit long. It's about 18 inches which he strapped to his right thigh under his clothing. He presented the tribute to Eglon, king of Moab, who was a very fat man. After Ehud had presented the tribute, he sent on their way those who had carried it. 
But on reaching the stone images near Gilgal, he himself went back to Eglon and said, Your Majesty, I have a secret message for you. The king said to his attendants, Leave us. And they all left. Now, warning, the following is rated PG-13. It is not for the faint of heart. Verse 20, Ehud then approached him while he was sitting alone in the upper room of his palace and said, I have a message from God for you. As the king rose from his seat, Ehud reached with his left hand, drew the sword from his right thigh, and plunged it into the king's belly. Even the handle sank in after the blade and his bowels discharged. Ehud did not pull the sword out and the fat closed over it. Then Ehud went out to the porch. He shut the doors of the upper room behind him and locked them. If this story was turned into a TV movie, it would have to be on cable. Verse 24, after he had gone, the servants came and found the doors of the upper room locked. They said he must be relieving himself in the upper room, in the inner room of the palace. They waited to the point of embarrassment, but when he did not open the doors of the room, they took a key and unlocked them. There they saw their Lord fallen to the floor dead. While they waited, Ehud got away. He passed by the stone images and escaped to Siara. When he arrived there, he blew a trumpet in the hill country of Ephraim. And the Israelites went down with him from the hills, with him leading them. Follow me, he ordered, for the Lord has given Moab, your enemy, into your hands. So they followed him down and took possession of the fords of the Jordan that led to the Moab. They allowed no one to cross over. At that time, they struck down about 10,000 Moabites, all vigorous and strong. Not one escaped. That day, Moab was made subject to Israel, and the land had peace for 80 years. Wow and oh my. No wonder not a lot of people speak about Ehud. But here we are in the middle of a cycle that keeps repeating itself throughout Judges. Sin, servitude, supplication, and salvation. The nation of Israel sins against God. They forget all about Him. They turn to false gods, idols, sinful pursuits. They replace their worship of God with, with dead gods, idols. God punishes them, raises up an oppressor against them. In this case, it's the Moabites. These were the descendants of Lot. And they've teamed up with the Amalekites and the Ammonites. It's, they're a mighty force now. They've captured Israel, oppressed its people, and placed them in servitude. They've not only taken over the land and made them subjects, while well, Israel has to pay a regular tribute to the Moabites. And finally, they cry out to God in verse 15, that's supplication. And God sends a deliverer. He provides his salvation through an unlikely hero. And we're going to learn a lot from this man today. What do we know about him? Ehud. We're told in verse 15 that he was left-handed. The literal translation in the Hebrew is interesting. It says he was hindered in the right hand. Twice, the text says that he put the sword on his right side because he was left-handed. We read that Ehud came from the tribe of Benjamin, a name that means son of my right hand, a term of strength. But here the text is clear. 
Ehud was left-handed. He was hindered in the right hand, meaning he was weak. He was physically limited. I I think this is more than just he was left-handed and that his left hand was dominant over his right hand. He couldn't use his right hand. There was some unspecified physical limitation. He had a handicap, a physical obstacle. And I, I can imagine when he was a little boy asking his parents why he wasn't like the others. Why am I not like everyone else around me? Why am I different? Why did God make me this way? And I can imagine with tears in their eyes, his parents telling him, Ehud, someday God is going to use you for something great. Someday. Parents, do your, do your children a favor and stop telling them they can be anything they want to be. The reality is they can't. Tell them to be what God wants them to be. You know, I could try with all my effort every day of my life, practice as much as is humanly possible, and I'm never going to be an NBA player. (laughs) Tell your kids to seek out God's purpose for their lives and pursue it. I'm not alone in this thought. Max Lucado says, secular thinking as a whole doesn't buy this. Secular society sees no author behind the book No architect behind the house, no purpose behind or beyond life. Society sees no bag and certainly never urges you to unpack one. It simply says you can be anything you want to be. Be a butcher if you want to, a sales rep if you like. Be an ambassador if you really care. You can be anything you want to be. But can you? If God didn't pack within you the meat sense of a butcher, the people skills of a salesperson, or the world vision of an ambassador, can you be one? An unhappy, dissatisfied one, perhaps, but a fulfilled one? No. Can an acorn become a rose, a whale fly like a bird, or lead become gold? Absolutely not. You cannot be anything you want to be, but you can be everything God wants you to be. I believe that's one of the greatest life lessons we can teach our children today. And it's clear to me that Ehud's parents taught him that. How do we know? Well, despite his disability, he became a successful and important man, certainly important enough to take the tribute to the king. And that doesn't happen without the right kind of support. He was a judge, a diplomat, and he wasn't spinning his wheels trying to be a warrior. He pursued what God wanted him to be, and he did it well. His value was not in what this world thought of him or how it categorized him or how it labeled him. His value was in what God could do with him, in him, and through him. So we come to our first point. What do we learn from Ehud? Number one, he found his value through God's eyes. God loves using the underdog, the obscure, the weak, the overlooked. This book is, uh, of Judges is filled with examples. We literally could do a whole series on unlikely heroes. Men and women used by God, obscure people that God chose to use for His glory. We look a little bit later and into the era of Israel's first king, and we see Samuel who went to find the king God wanted him to find. And He went to Jesse and he looked at his sons. They were all strong except the last one, the, the runt of the litter, David. And that's who God wanted. Hudson Taylor once said, 
God is sufficient for God's work. God chose me because I was weak enough. God does not do His great works by large committees. He trains someone to be quiet enough and little enough, and then He uses him. How little can you be for God to use you? How little and quiet can you make your ego and your will and your agenda so that God can make His presence and His power mighty in your life? That's the key, isn't it? God doesn't base your value on this world's assessment of you. He doesn't base your value on how great you think you are or how weak you think you are. He doesn't base your value on how much alike everyone else you are. He doesn't base your value on your skill set, your talents. He chooses those who choose to let Him change them, to remake them, to lead them, to work in them. Don't let this world define the ceiling of your potential. Let God work in you and through you however He chooses, and He will blow the roof off your ceiling. 1 Corinthians 1.27 reminds us, but God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. Ehud could have very easily dwelt on his disability, his weakness, his shortcoming, and doubted his value to God. He could have passed on the opportunity to take the tribute to the king. No, 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 not me. I'm, I'm inadequate. Send a, a mighty warrior for the job. That's what's needed. He could have doubted and said, how could God possibly use me? But no, he didn't. Ehud rested. He accepted his, his potential in God's eyes. And his value was in what God thought of him. That's what God wants. He wants our trust. Trust him enough to let him use you despite any doubts, any reservations, any fears that you have, and watch what He can accomplish. And now here we are in Christ, and we might feel like underdogs of little value, that we don't have the right credentials, we don't have eloquent speech, our family background isn't good enough, we think. We're too ordinary. But look at what we saw. God can use us in amazing ways. This room is filled with possible ehuds, doesn't matter what your family background is. It doesn't matter where you come from. It doesn't matter if you're limited in some capacity. God sees you as very much more than ordinary. He takes each one of us from our different backgrounds and with our different talents and skills. And He uses us in unique and extraordinary ways. And God is excited about how He wants to use you today. So the day finally came when the opportunity presented itself to Ehud. He sharpened his double-edged sword and concealed it on his right side. Now, why was this important? Traditionally in those days, guards would search for swords on the left side. Left-handers were really overlooked. And uh, that's where you would draw the sword as, uh, as a right-hander. And being disabled, he was also viewed as a non-threat. This man was not a warrior. He wasn't a threat. And so he easily passed the security search. This was, this was just a weak man bringing the tribute. We know better. We know that he was incredibly strong in his left hand. 
as evidenced by the depth of the sword thrust. He had been excuse, exclusively using his left hand and left arm all his life. Do you know how strong that would make you on that side? So if we were casting for the role of the stealth assassin here, who would we want? What would we want? What would be the ideal? Well, the ideal would be someone who would be viewed as non-threatening, who could easily pass the security inspection, yet was persuasive enough to get one-on-one -on -one with the king, and courageous enough and strong enough to kill him, and then respected enough and wise enough to lead the entire nation in the military strategy to complete the battle. So if we could dream up the ideal casting, it would be Ehud. He was uniquely positioned. He had the unique characteristics for the role he would play. I would say he was uniquely created for the role. God created him the way he was on purpose. His circumstance was no accident. His weakness was no accident. He was formed and designed for a specific purpose. God designed his life, shaped his path to lead him to this point for a reason, for such a time as this. Isn't it reassuring? Isn't it comforting to know that God has a unique purpose for you? It's not chaos. Your life is in His hands. What this world views as a weakness, He turns into a strength. I'm going to use your organization skills here. I'm going to use your speaking skills there. I'm going to use your leadership skills to lead this group. I'm going to use your love for kids to, to teach these children. I'm going to use your fears and turn you into an overcomer to help you console and encourage those who fear. I'm going to use your doubts and help you overcome them so you can help others who doubt. I'm going to use your failures, your flaws, your addictions to help you overcome them so that you in turn can help others. If you question your value, friend, it's, it's because you're judging value based on this world's stand, standards, their viewpoint, or your own standards, or your own dreams and desires. If you recalibrate your perspective to a far greater standard, God's standard, you'll see that a life committed to Him, living sold out for His purpose, has immense value, priceless value. The maker of the universe would rather die for you than live without you. Want to rethink your value? Rest in that fact. Like Ehud did, find your value through God's eyes. Our second point, what do we learn from Ehud? He found his courage in God's strength. When he arrived at the palace of King Eglon, I can imagine the fear, the tenseness that ensued. Ehud's waiting for just the right time to strike. And, and the moment doesn't present itself or, or he doesn't feel comfortable enough with the opportunity. So they present the tribute, which quite a few had to carry. It was a sizable tribute. And they begin their journey back home. And at that moment, the courage wells up within Ehud. I can imagine him saying to himself, you know what, I'm not going to let this moment pass without fulfilling my mission. He heads back into the palace to finish what God sent him to do. He heads back alone. At this point, 
Take a look. What did Ehud have? His fellow Israelites that, that came with him had gone on without him. He didn't have an army behind him. He didn't have backup. There was no plan B. He didn't even have a plausible reason for why he went back to the king. Every crutch you can imagine was gone. There was Ehud on his mission alone, except for one person, God. And that's when Ehud found his courage. Sometimes God removes every crutch that we lean on. Sometimes he puts us in a position and a place such that there's no one we can lean on but him. The friends we counted on can't help us, can't go with us. The mentors we leaned upon can't stand for us. The excuses, gone. The explanations, gone. No backup, no stuntman, no net. All we have is God, and then something amazing happens. When all we have is God, we realize that God is all we need. Are you there today? Are you in a place where all you've leaned upon in the past is gone and all you have is God? I'm here to tell you that He's more than enough. He's more than you need. You and God are a majority. I would pity anyone or anything or any circumstance or any obstacle that went against you plus God. Ehud found his courage at that moment. And it wasn't in himself. It wasn't in his skill. It wasn't in Israel's army. It wasn't in the tribute group that came with him. It wasn't even in the knife concealed on his right leg. His courage had one source and one source only. He found his courage in God, in God's strength. Our God is big enough for whatever you're going through. No matter how bleak things may seem, no matter how tall that mountain may look, no matter how stacked the odds are against you, God is big enough, more than big enough, to give you victory. Place your courage in that and live like it. Don't live like a defeated Christian. Live like the victorious child of God you are. Remember, we know how the story ends. We've read the back of the book. We know where the tempter ends up. How can he get you down when you live in light of that? And Scripture reminds us time and time again, it's filled with reminders. Philippians 4.13, I can do all things through him who gives me strength. Isaiah 40.29, he gives strength to the weary and increases the power of the weak. Ephesians 6.10, finally, be strong in the Lord and in His mighty power. 2 Corinthians 12.9, but He said to me, My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly about my weaknesses, so that Christ's power may rest on me. So with Ehud, with his courage firmly resting in God and his strength, that king didn't stand a chance. Ehud found his value through God's eyes. He found his courage in God's strength. And finally, 
he found his calling in God's service. Our third and last point. Do you think Ehud started out that day or that month or that year with an exact blueprint, a precise roadmap for what he was going to accomplish? No. He had no idea how or what or when God was going to use him. He wasn't privy to God's grand design for his life. His plan for his life, he didn't know. There was no walkthrough guidebook for what he needed to do. Ehud simply waited for God's urging. I hear so many people talk about searching for their purpose in life, looking to discover God's grand calling for them. There's long questionnaires dedicated for this. There, there are committees that have created these questionnaires, and you go to a lot of churches, and that's one of the first things they make you fill out. Questionnaires to discover what God's calling is for you. As if God is waiting to see how you answer the questions to, to know how he's going to use you. Did Ehud wake up that morning, answer a 15-page questionnaire, and figure out that God was going to use him as a stealth assassin that day? Mm -mm. He sharpened his knife, he tucked it under his robe, and he waited for God to stir him. Did you catch what he did? He prepared himself, he equipped himself, he armed himself, and he waited for God to use him. Prepare and wait. Both steps are critical. You can't do one without the other. So often, and we see this a lot, we study his word, we equip ourselves for service, and then instead of waiting for how and when God is going to use us, we go off and we want to create ministries for ourselves. We're a hammer hitting the wood. There's no nail there. There's no need there. God hasn't called you there. Other times we see people who earnestly, earnestly and, and truly want to serve God and are waiting to serve God, but they're ill-prepared. They don't have enough knowledge of God and His Word and His principles and His precepts. They've never let Him work in their hearts and mold their characters. And sadly, I see this as well. I see a lot of churches who take people in, ask them how they want to serve, and then put them in positions of service that they're not even remotely prepared for or skilled for or ready for. It doesn't work. Neither way works. But if we let Him prepare our lives and our hearts for His service, and then we wait for His perfect timing, we can become a mighty force for Him. Amen. You want to find God's calling for your life? You want Him to use you to do great things? Start by preparing yourself. Start by developing a closer walk with Him. Dive into His Word. Learn His principles. Study His precepts. Immerse yourself in His ways. Let Him take you and mold you through circumstances through trials, through lessons into the Christian he wants you to be. That's the necessary step that's so often skipped in our search for God's calling. Prepare and then wait for him to provide the opportunity. Don't force it. Don't force anything. Wait patiently for him. So after King Eglon was dead, the deed was done, Ehud escaped and blew a trumpet in the hill country of Ephraim. And look at this now. He called all of Israel to follow him and finish the victory. He was able to rally the entire nation. 
And brilliantly, though, look at this strategy. Instead of attacking the city, he went down into the Jordan because he knew the Moabites were going to retreat across the river into their own country. And this is where he cut them off. The Israelites killed 10,000 Moabites, all robust, mighty men that day. His service wasn't marked by chaos. He didn't find himself ill-prepared. Had he done the natural thing that we would think, go to the city and attack the Moabites, you know what they would have done? They would have escaped, gone through the Jordan, retrenched, and returned better prepared for battle. His, far was, his plan was, was far more strategic. He cut off their escape path. He cut off their escape route. He had a plan for battle when it came to that. He thought about it. He was prepared. He had prayed over it. And that plan was immensely successful. Israel turned the tables on Moab, thoroughly defeated them, and then we read they lived in peace for the next 80 years. Every Israelite that day was reminded, was reminded, look what God can do for you. They were reminded to live close to Him, to honor Him, to place Him first in their lives and obey Him. For years they had forgotten. They had abandoned God. They turned to false idols. Where were the false gods now? Where were the idols now? It was like Ehud slapped them in the face and said, wake up, wake up from your slumber. He reminded them in verse 28, the Lord, the Lord God, remember Him, Israel, the Lord has given Moab, your enemy, into your hands. It wasn't your false gods. It wasn't your foolish idols. It wasn't even me. The blessing is from the hand of God alone. So in their cycle of faith, rebellion, and restoration, at that point, Israel turns back to God. They returned to righteousness. An entire nation came back to God that day. What did it take? What did it take to turn an entire nation back to God? Ehud, one man. One man sold out for God. A man who found his value through God's eyes, his courage in God's strength, and his calling in God's service. One man. You want to start a movement? You can. It starts with just one person. Don't ever think you're not enough to start something great for God. It all starts with just one. An anonymous author wrote this poem. One song can spark a moment. One flower can wake the dream. One tree can start a forest. One bird can herald spring. One smile begins a friendship. One hand clasp lifts a soul. One hug can dry the tears and make the lonely feel more whole. One vote can change a nation. One sunbeam lights a room. One candle wipes out darkness. One laugh will conquer gloom. One step must start each journey. One word must start, e start a prayer. One hope will raise our spirits. One touch can show you care. One voice can speak with wisdom. One heart can know what's true. One life can make a difference. That difference can be you. It begins with one. 
You want to start something great? You can. Ehud had nothing great of himself. The world labeled him flawed at best. His friends may have labeled him limited. His detractors labeled him useless. But God labeled him a mighty vessel. He can use you in great ways, friend, if you let him. If you let him prepare you. If you let him empty you of you and fill you with him. If you seek your value in him, find your courage in him, and pursue your calling in him. It all begins with trusting him. Step one, trust him as your savior. If you've never given him your heart, don't wait another moment. And trust Him as your Lord if you've never given Him full control of your life. He's proven Himself time and time again, hasn't He? Isn't He worth your trust? Everything else in life and everyone else in life will disappoint you. Will, will let you down. Will cause regret. He never has and never will. He's never failed and he never will. So next time you ask yourself, what can I accomplish? Remember Ehud, the little known lefty who moved an entire nation back to God. Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for the lives you've provided us that that fill the pages of your word with examples of men and women of faith who lived completely sold out to you. We've seen what you can do with these lives, Lord, and we want to be believers like that. We want to live like that. We, we want to have that kind of faith, that kind of trust in you and in you alone. Help us, Father, to take our eyes off of ourselves, off of our failures and flaws and limitations off of this world and its standards and expectations and onto you. Help us to always look to you for the right perspective, for the strength and the courage that we need in life. And let us be prepared for your service, Father. Give us the dedication to study your word, to live by your principles. Give us the courage to allow you to work in us and change us into the men and women of faith you want us to be. Let us see our value through your eyes. Let us find our courage in your strength and let us pursue our calling in your service. Thank you, Father, for your faithfulness. Thank you for choosing to use us despite ourselves. How blessed we are. We love you and we pray in the precious name of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen.